All right, if you can turn to Genesis 2. Um, the uh, reason behind my madness is uh, vacation is in full swing still, vacation sw- season rather, and uh, it's really hard to, uh, you know, for people to kind of come in and out of a sermon series. And so these are sort of uh, self-contained sermons uh, taken from Genesis, but as you've, you're going to find out, uh, I'm using the whole Bible <laughs> in a sense. Uh, all, almost all of the readings that we did today, Colossians 1, Romans 8, uh, the stuff in Genesis, uh, all of that is really the sermon text. Because when, uh, as we're looking at these topics, uh, what I want us to understand is um, not what one passage says about it, but instead see it through the breadth of Scripture and how um, that develops because of the great story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so I really want us to start thinking through um, some of these topics in light of that, and that has a, a dual purpose, not just for your edification, but also for your ability to uh, do apologetics. Okay? So there is a method to my madness, and uh, it's going to be a little different than we're used to doing, but we will return to Philippians in a little while. Have no fear. Um, just uh, trying to get through vacation season. So, all right, with all of that said, uh, Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 5 through 9 and then 15 through 17. Um, when the bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Thank you for this enduring and reliable word. And as we examine it this morning, let us not forget that by it you examine us as well. Grant the Spirit to illuminate the Word that we might understand it, believe it, and live in accordance with your will and purposes as revealed here. In the name of the living Word who took on flesh, Jesus, we ask this. Amen. It is, uh, in many ways, difficult to spend much time on social media without coming across an environmental issue. Indeed, it's also difficult to watch the news or go into a web news site, uh, a web, yeah, news site, 
and not come across some sort of environmental issue. Whether it's a volcano that's erupting in Hawaii, uh, whether it's the uh, never-ending discussion about uh, climate change, whether it's recycling and uh, whether or not that's a good thing and whether or not it's going to bankrupt the state of California, uh, the issue of pollution, so forth and so on. It is difficult to spend much time without coming in contact with some sort of issue with regard to the, the environment and our place within the environment. And usually when that happens, there is some level of conflict that ensues as we enter into the discussion. It never amazes me, I'm sorry, I should say it, it always amazes me at how much conflict I can get into regarding environmental issues. Not just with people who don't share my faith, but with people who actually share my faith. We can sometimes not apply our faith or fully understand the dimensions of our faith with regard to issues such as this. And so the big question that I'm wanting us to look at this morning is what is the relationship between us and the environment? And that's why we need to bring the whole of Scripture, not just one tiny portion of Scripture, into view as we consider this incredibly uh, complex sort of question. Because indeed, it's not an easy question. It is complex, and that's the problem, is that some people try to make it too simple. And, well, things get ugly from there. So I'm trusting that things will not get ugly here. As we talk about these things, let us submit ourselves to the Word of God this morning. So as we answer this, I want us to keep in mind first that idea of creation, the fact that Christ created us as stewards of creation. So we can't understand our place in the world and our relationship with the rest of creation, by which I mean uh, the material world and also the immaterial world that is not God and is not us. How's that for a broad thing, huh? Okay. Uh, we're not really going to focus, it's not really concerned with angels, and so we'll also sort of, when we discuss creation, we're sort of excluding angels from that as well. Angels fallen and faithful. Okay? But we're talking about this world we live in and everything that is around it, the stars and the planets and all of that. So we can't really understand how we, how we are intended to interact with these things uh, apart from understanding the origin of all things as well as the goal of all things, the purpose of these things. Now, it would be easy for someone to say, as I go from Genesis here and, and say, well, you know, we live in a more complex society religiously than they did uh, when Genesis was written. And I would say to you, if that is your thought, is that Genesis was written in a world filled with competing worldviews. Okay? Competing worldviews are not new. <laughs> it's not something that has happened because of the Enlightenment, uh, but... The book of Genesis, and particularly the first three chapters, are what we would call polemical theology. They are written precisely because the world around God's people did not agree. And in fact, God's people were still in the process of coming out of Egypt and being surrounded by all of these false gods, and they needed to know the truth. And so this was not a common viewpoint when it was written. It was a controversial viewpoint when it was written. 
The nations around the Israelites had made gods of the forces of nature. You know, Ra, the sun god in Egypt. And there were many gods that were in Egypt. And they were about to go into the promised land. And there were many gods there, like Baal, who was a god of the storm as well as a god of fertility. And so all of these, they had basically deified nature in their own way. And now uh, people around us might say that they've kind of gone beyond that. And I would say, yes, uh, no one is worshiping Baal. While uh, I watched Thor Ragnarok last night, uh, I, I, don't, I haven't met a, a worshiper of Thor. Okay, uh, maybe you have, but I haven't. Um, but that doesn't mean that even a secular world doesn't have a god. And in fact, what has happened is that materialism, secular humanism, this form of materialism, has essentially, through science, given godlike powers to nature. Because they believe in a self-creating universe, a self-sustaining universe. They would not call it that, but they have given godlike powers the universe. They, they do that in the way they speak about nature, but we'll get to that in a little bit. And so I want to say to you that the origins of the universe, of creation, are a matter of faith, not just for us, but for everyone else too, precisely because no one can prove with certainty what happened. There's no videotape. Uh, There's no audio. None of us were there. And we must remember, as it says in Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We believe in creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. It is a statement of faith. A statement of conviction. But it is not provable, shall we say. So let's keep that in mind. It's what I believe because of the testimony of Scripture. As we as we think about Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and as God is at work in creation, as we, uh, we, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we find all of these verbs that are there. God created, meaning, uh, you know, he, he, he made something out of nothing. But then God also did some separation. Uh, we see that verb used repeatedly. You know, he's separating the earth from the sea and the upper heavens from the lower heavens and uh, these sorts of things. He's, he's doing separating, but then he's also doing gathering as he brings land together, for instance. We see that he takes materials and makes them or fashions them according to his purpose by his word. We see in Genesis 2 that after making Adam, he placed Adam in a garden that he had first planted. So, God the botanist, God the horticulturist, he created a garden, and then he created a man, and he stuck the man in the garden to work the garden. So we see God working 
in this process of creation. There's a, a process that God underwent, or that God underwent, rather, that he, he undertook a process in days one through six. And so we see all of these different kinds of things that he's doing on these different days. But what we need to keep clear is that all things were created through and for the Son who would invent, eventually would inherit all of these things for His glory. That is the testimony we find in, in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not made anything that was made. And so no matter what we could think of that exists within creation, Jesus was integral to its creation. He was involved. Not only that, as we read and as we confessed from Colossians chapter 1, it was through Him and for Him that all things were made. And so, let's think of it this way. Do you love God? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I want to encourage you to therefore love what He made. To love the creation. To, In other words, to seek the best for his that which he made. Likewise, there are people who don't love God, but they love nature, they love creation. And I would say, don't stop with nature, don't stop with creation, but love the one who made it. So there's sort of an apologetic piece there for you as you interact with people. Oh, yes, you love flowers. Do you love the maker of the flowers? Do you love the one who understands color and beauty to a far deeper degree than you? For he has made all of these things. Isn't that a God worth loving? Believing in? Trusting? Let's shift. Adam was made, as we see in Genesis 1, to rule, to subdue and rule creation. Now, that first word has the idea of to bring under power, and then the other one is to govern. And so Adam, you know, he, he was placed in this position, but he needs to subdue creation. He needs to bring creation under his authority so that he could rule it. He was supposed to be actively engaged as God's representative. One of the things I did yesterday because my family's away is I went to the movies and you know I don't I don't see dramas. I see big movies. So I'm, Jurassic Park, baby. And of course, there's there's Dr. Malcolm, once again, played by Jeff Goldblum, testifying before the committees and wondering that uh, really what what these dinosaurs need is to be away from us. He's, he's speaking from a very human, environmentalist viewpoint, not from a creational viewpoint. We are an integral part of creation. We are intended to 
interact with creation. We're intended to bring it under our authority and to rule over it, to make it serve good purposes as God's representatives. You see, in chapter 2, Adam is placed in that beautiful garden and he's there to cultivate it and to keep it. He's there to make it more to grow and to produce all kinds of fruit and food that he can eat and he's there to protect it from anything that might destroy it, which means he should have killed that stupid snake. But he didn't. Well, I'll get to that in maybe a little bit here. But we, we need to come with... Uh, this, these discussions with the understanding that we were made as a part of the created order to enact, re, to, to interact rather with the created order. It's supposed to be a symbiotic relationship between us and the created order. We make it fruitful and then we are able to eat the fruit of it. That's what Adam ate. I'm glad we still don't live there because I like meat. But he worked and he ate from the fruit of his labor. And that's a good thing. And people were appointed to care for creation and to receive benefits from creation. And so let's put it this way. Creation isn't a museum that Adam was supposed to guard. You know, everything's behind glass and it's untouchable. Rather, what we see as we look at Genesis 1 and 2 is that it's a workshop for Adam to take raw resources and make beautiful, glorious, and and important things out of them. He's to harness creation. He's not to turn it into, you know, or just keep it pristine and untouched. And so, creation, God, and you still matter. But something important, something significant has happened that messed it up. We see, or we, let's, let's look at the fact that Christ subjected all creation to futility for sin. I was, uh, my dad, uh, drove over and visited us for a day in upstate New York and we were sitting on the back porch, and there was a beautiful hummingbird, a beautiful red-necked hummingbird, and I was just uh, appreciating it. And my father said, nature is amazing. Too bad we screwed it up. Now, he's putting too much into nature because my father is not a Christian. He is a, a materialist. He's one of those people that gives uh, divine po- qualities and powers to uh inanimate objects. Um, But he hits on something important, the fact that Adam sinned. He ate from the one tree that he was not supposed to eat from. Adam sinned because he obeyed his wife instead of God. Okay? And because Adam sinned, um, not just... Adam fell, but all of humanity fell, but it also affected creation. Because we see right there in Genesis 3 the fact that now there are thorns and there are thistles. 
that this very good creation, as God summed it up on day six, has now got this stuff called thorns and thistles, and now it's by the sweat of your brow that you will eat. There is a diminishing return on your work, Adam, and therefore you have to work harder to keep up, Adam, because you have been rebellious, Adam. And so there is still this degree of interdependence, this symbiotic relationship that exists, but now we both bless and curse each other. And so as we think about creation, there is beauty. Even here in the desert, there's amazing beauty. The, you know, the sunsets, when the desert blooms and some of those flowers are just amazingly beautiful. Uh, the creatures that roam around, um, the mountains, I love mountains. I find so much beauty here in the desert. But I also recognize that because Adam sinned, there is also great danger There are rattlesnakes, mountain lions, javelina, crazy car drivers. Um, (laughs) And so we are blessed by, by creation, but at times we are also sort of damaged or risked by creation. You know, monsoons come and there's flooding. Okay, other parts of the world we see things like hurricanes and earthquakes. Okay. But not only that, but we also create great beauty at times. We, we fashion things that are incredibly beautiful to behold. Pieces of, you know, Turning Bear's artwork is beautiful. Largely because it captures creation. But we also do bad things. <laughs> we pollute, for instance. Like my father-in-law, one of his clients was W.R. Grace which polluted, and I think it was Waltham, Mass. They had a, it was a huge toxic site that, was, that grew there and um, immortalized by the John Travolta film, A Civil Action. So if you want to find out about that. But that was one of my father-in-law's clients uh, when he worked in the insurance business years ago. But let's keep this in mind. Creation is still under the authority of Christ. Paul, in Romans 8, speaks to this, and he says that Christ has arranged or placed creation under something. He has subordinated it under something, and this something is futility. Or the the translation that Jerry read from, corruption. Okay? Those, Those are slightly different. Okay, but I think they, they kind of get to the, the same basic point right there. Okay. We experience its frailty. We experience its purposelessness at times. We experience as well its perverseness at times. Okay. Nothing works right. I came back into the office. Don't let Jamie hear this. I came back into the office and there was a car out front I hadn't seen before and it's the copier repairman. 
I went home that night, I turned on my TV, and my remote control controls on and off in the volume for my TV, but I can't change the channel. And somehow it got on rock hits, and so I've got all kinds of, you know, music from the 90s that I didn't like. (laughs) Abrasive and purposeless music. (laughs) Right? Not working right. Our cars break down. My house is not that old and we've already got a brand new dishwasher and we've got, you know, we've got a brand new washer, clothes washer and all of these things. Stuff breaks. Doesn't work right. And if you use Windows, you know exactly what I'm talking about on a regular basis. Okay? But what I, what I want us to keep in mind is the providence of God. Right? There's a limit to what we can do to mess this up. Because Jesus is still in control. The futility that we experience does not mean that Jesus, the world is out of control and Jesus is just kind of going, oh, I don't know what to do with this thing. Like he's some, uh, you know, guy in a movie who's just watching and the world fall apart. He's not like us in that respect. He's not overwhelmed by the futility of the world. He's the one who placed the world into, in, in, into this place of futility for a particular reason. He's still got it under control. This word of futility that's found there in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is repeated often in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, or vanity, a vapor, a nothingness. And we experience this, and we have to keep that in mind as we think about our relationship with, crea- with creation. But it's not just creation that's been subjected to futility. We don't work right either. Romans 1 says that we have a darkened understanding so that we don't understand how to subdue and rule anymore. We don't fully understand how to cultivate and keep anymore. Back years ago, I had uh, read Michael Crichton's book, State of Fear, which was uh, about the uh, um, at that point um, global warming frenzy that was taking place, and so on C-SPAN I was trying to find this and I couldn't find it. But on C-SPAN he was doing his book tour and he ended up spending an, ex- an extended period of time uh, talking about the history of Yosemite State or National Park. And really, if you look at the history of of that national park, what you see is a history of mismanagement. As they've continually started with the idea of, well, the museum. Let's just keep it pristine. Let's not touch it. And they saw that, you know, well, trees fall and things happen and then fires happen and now there's all this dead wood laying around and everything's going to burn! Oh, well, maybe we should do something, okay. Well, you know, we got too many predators there, so let's take care of the predators. Oh, now there's too many deer because there's no predators. Yeah, that's not too good either. 
they're all dying of starvation because there's not enough to eat. Uh, okay, they, they, they kept coming at it from this perspective of man's limited engagement with creation because their, their thinking, was, their understanding was darkened and was also marked by futility or frustration. And they just kept missing the mark on how to really take care of creation. And that's, that is just a microcosm of things. Okay? We see it. Therefore, we are both producers and polluters. We are builders. We are destroyers. And so that means because of the futility of creation as well as the futility of our own thinking that all of our solutions to the problems that we see generally create more problems. Green energy isn't green. Charles Garland and I were talking uh, at General Assembly, and he was joking about how someone made fun of his uh, his Prius, his green Prius, which wasn't green. Because you forget of all of the fossil fuels that have to get burned in order to produce it, but also the fossil fuels that are burned in order to make the electricity that is used to power it. There goes your environmental righteousness right there, buddy. And have you ever seen what a lithium mine does to the world? Want to talk about pollution? Okay. And so sometimes we get so focused on being green, for instance, that's just an example, that we don't realize the damage that being green can cause. And we've done this. We, I remember we used, I used to go to the grocery store and we'd have these big paper bags. Oh, bad for the environment. Because we're cutting down trees. Well, you can always plant a tree. So what do they do? Plastic bags. Petroleum. Yay. Did you realize that's what you use? Petroleum. Now, oh, that's bad. Now we're supposed to buy hemp bags. And so whether it's butter and margarine, whatever it is, we keep changing. I grew up in southern New Hampshire and watching the news about the, pr- the protests at the Seabrook Nuclear power plant. Okay, in the 70s and 80s, nuclear was evil. Lately, we've been hearing because of oil spills and other things, nuclear be good. We should all go do nuclear. And then things happen like, uh, you know, in Japan, and I'm waiting for Godzilla to emerge any moment out of the radioactive waste that took place. But I'm spending too much time on this. But you get my point. It's too complex for us to come at it with simple solutions. So while Christ subjected creation to futility, that thankfully was not the final chapter in the story as we think about our relationship with the environment or creation. Because we see... Point three, that Christ reconciles all creation to himself. You see, Jesus still loves creation despite subjecting it to futility. It was a temporary measure. It's still existing, but it is ultimately temporary. We see even in Genesis 9, the, the giving of the covenant to Noah that preserves creation as the stage for the unfolding drama of redemption. If he's going to redeem you and me, there has to be a creation. Because you, unlike him, 
can't exist apart from the creation. And so he promises that he's going to keep it together, despite the futility that he placed upon it. He's going to keep it together so that he can unfold this story of redemption that he has written. Okay? Paul declares in Colossians 1 that Christ reconciles all things to himself, not just people. That's hard for us to grasp because all things didn't sin, just people. But it's getting back to he's going to remove the futility, okay? The, the, the coming removal of the futility upon creation is a result of the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. It has a cosmic effect, not just a personal effect with regard to your sin. It does have that, but there's more. And this is part of the more. He made peace by the blood of His cross so that He could restore this peace. He could restore this harmony between us and creation. Jesus essentially is going to restore Eden, but even better than Eden was because this Eden can't be messed up. And so Christ shed His blood to save both humanity and creation. The stage that, on which all of this takes place from the curse of sin. And so there's two things that we can take from that. Two very important implications. One is, humanity is not the Savior of creation. If you take Jesus out of the picture, what you end up having is that man is the, supposed to be the Savior of creation. And so now you have, you know, the, well, we'll we've got to spend, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars to prevent the earth from warming up 0.2 degrees. Okay, I'm not trying to get political. I, I'm just trying to show the insanity that takes place when we take Jesus out of the picture, we begin to act as the saviors. And we're not intended to be the saviors. We're stewards, not saviors. And there's an incredible difference. I wasn't going to, but yeah. Gondor, the kingdom of Gondor, Lord of the Rings. Okay. It's the steward versus the king. Aragorn was the king. The steward just keeps it. Until the king gets back. Okay? He doesn't, he doesn't act on his own authority, but he has a derived authority. And that's our situation. We have a derived, delegated authority. And we need to remember that. But neither can humanity utterly destroy creation. God limits the damage we can do, even though we can do a lot of damage. And so we don't have to be fearful. That's what I'm really getting at. The environmental alarmism that can often take place. I'm not saying don't be concerned about anything with regard to the environment, but don't fall into the alarmism that the world's going to fall apart. No, it's not. Jesus has it. 
Jesus has died and risen again. Therefore, we receive forgiveness and we receive some renewal to our mind, but not complete yet, but still subject to futility at times. But our renewed minds enable us to exert greater wisdom for our stewardship. Learning what does and does not work. We can do things by trial and error instead of acting out of fearful impulse with fearful environmentalism. The greatest fashion of the day, which apparently is uh, single-use plastics. You know. Both church, as we, as we get back to, to Romans 8, let us recognize that both church and creation experience Anxious longing for the final redemption, which is explained as adoption. Okay, the, the adoption of the sons of God. We, we, we are to eagerly wait for that day. But while we wait, we suffer under futility. Okay, that has not yet been removed. I cannot help but think of the adoption processes that my wife and I have gone through. How in both of those we had to eagerly wait. We experienced the futility of the, the uh, insanity of other governments and the processes that they made us do and the things they make us wait. And you've got this picture of this kid that legally is yours but does, is not yet at home. And you, you're excited and you want to, you want to be able to, to, to hold this child and teach this child and encourage this child and they look so beautiful and, well, except Micah. Micah looked angry. If you remember those pictures. Micah. <laughs> she was not happy about something that day. She was a beautiful child, but she was not happy when they took that picture. But there's this anticipation, this eagerness in the midst of the frustration and the, uh, that, that goes on. And then I think that's a good picture of, of what we experience while we're waiting because Jesus has not yet removed the futility. We see this groaning. In verse 23, it's groaning together. Meaning, us and creation are groaning together. Creation is groaning. It groans in hurricanes. It groans in earthquakes. It groans in volcanoes and other sorts of things. And we groan because creation groans. We groan together with it. And now, for the unbeliever, this pain of the futility is more like the pangs of death. You know, Sting sang about that with the police years ago. When the world is running down, make the best of what's all around. That's how they view it. It's falling apart. It's coming to nothing. But for us, it's the pangs of childbirth. It's not pleasant, but there's something really good on the other side. You get to hold this little baby, you know? And so we groan with creation, and we should understand that this groaning is intended to imply prayer. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And so as we're waiting, we're supposed to be praying. We don't share in the despair of the, the, the people who are, are always worried about environmental catastrophe, but we do groan and we pray in faith. Lord, bring the day. Lord, bring the day when the futility is lifted. Lord, bring that day. Please, please bring that day. Zach S.Y. notes that this groaning arises first when human creatures exert a cruel domination rather than a careful dominion over creation. Careful dominion imitates God's approach to both soil and foliage. And that's just sort of working with creation as it's intended. But when we destroy creation, we should be groaning. But this groaning again comes is part of prayer. And so Elizabeth Elliot, in a different context, talks about the fact of waiting on God requires a willingness to hear uncertainty, to carry within oneself the unanswered question, lifting the heart to God about it whenever it intrudes upon one's thoughts. She didn't imply it in terms of this, but it perfectly fits this. Okay, we're waiting for God to remove the futility. We're bearing with that uncertainty as to when. We've got some unanswered questions about all of that, but we're lifting our hearts to God in prayer whenever it happens, whenever we're groaning, whenever there's a hurricane that wipes out islands like Puerto Rico. We groan, we pray, we wait. And so we live in not just the curse, but we also live within the context of Christ's redemption while we await the final chapter. And this is short, so don't worry. That Christ renews all that He reconciles. The day is coming and the day will arrive when we receive the redemption of our bodies. The futility of our own bodies will be lifted. But not only that, the futility upon creation will be lifted. There will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. It's going to be glorified along with us. You know? It's, there's two ways of looking at it. One way wrong and one way not so, uh, one way right, rather. We're not glorified because creation is glorified. That's the, that's the wrong way to look at it. The right way is, Christ is glorified because we're united with Christ, we share in His glory, okay? And because we need a place to live because we're corporal beings, creation gets glorified. So Christ is glorified because you're united in Christ you get glorified. The futility is going to be lifted from your experience. And then because you live in this world, the futility is going to be lifted. That's the day we're waiting for when Christ is glorified in that fashion. So if we think about the original question that we had, I think our big answer is that Christ created us for a mutually beneficial relationship with creation. Where we are in that story is not Eden, where 
we're still in the futility, but we're, but as Christians, we're also in the redemption. So we can gain wisdom on how to live in a, in a world that is marked by futility. John Stott puts it this way, and I think it's a good way to end. For the earth belongs to God by creation and to us by delegation. This does not mean that he has handed it over to us in such a way as to give up his own rights over it, but rather he has given us the responsibility to preserve and develop the earth on his behalf. I'll put that on the Facebook page later. But I think that's a good way of putting it. Let's pray. Father, uh, what you have made is good. We confess that with Moses and with you. But we recognize that goodness is often obscured because in response to Adam's disobedience, you placed creation under futility and frustration. And each of us every day experience that futility and frustration to a degree, some worse than others. And it can be difficult for us at times to believe that you made it good. It can be difficult for us at times to believe that Christ has reconciled it to himself. And so we groan. Help us by your spirit to groan in hope, even as the world around us groans in fear or lives in utter carelessness. Help us to have wisdom in how we treat all that you have made. Help us to to be good stewards rather than seeing ourselves as saviors or spoilers of creation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.